We're going to look at the scripture now. And what we're going to do, since Rich and I both got busy and forgot to ask someone to read, we, <laughs> we're going to, here's, let's do it like this. Let's do a responsive reading. Can we do that? I'll read the first verse, you answer back, because this is Romans and it's a tough read. So Larry, let's put the scripture up and we'll look at this. Therefore, since we have been made righteous through his faithfulness combined with our faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand through him, and we boast in the hope of God's glory. But not only that, we even take pride in our problems because we know that trouble produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It isn't often that someone will die for a righteous person, though maybe someone might dare to die for a good person. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So now that we have been made righteous by his blood, we can be even more certain that we will be saved from God's wrath through him. If we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, while we were still enemies, now that we have been reconciled, how much more certain is it that we'll be saved by his life? Let's read the last verse together. And not, not only, only that, that we, we even take, take pride in God through our, our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ the, the one through whom we now have a restored relationship with God. May God bless this reading of Scripture. All right, so uh, if you're wondering who I am, um, uh, Larry, would you uh, project? This is from Emily. She posted this on our Facebook page um, in relation to me. So I am, uh, Emily McKinley is the pastor here at uh, Urban Village Hyde Park Woodlawn. I am married to Emily McKinley. And so this is in reference to that. So that's who I am today. Um, and I say this because it's kind of funny, because when I was growing up, uh, only um, men were able to preach in the church tradition when I came up. But one Sunday, they couldn't find anybody to preach. So the pastor's wife actually preached that Sunday, and that just totally, like, you know, it shook a lot of what I understood could happen. But, uh, and then everybody thought she did a better job than uh, the pastor. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm going to do that. So... Uh, uh, I'm just, uh, that's, that's my experience growing up. Um, just to get started, uh, this uh, past few weeks we've been on this sermon series called The Road Trip Through the Romans, and we've been going through Romans, which is Paul's kind of biggest letter about what he thinks uh, his beliefs about salvation are. Um, also, his, one of his primary concerns is the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And so we've been going through it, sticking with one book and uh, going through it. And today our topic is on the understanding of salvation or uh, uh, our assurance of it. Um, and so that's, uh, that's where I'm coming from uh, today. And uh, before I get started, um, let us take a moment to pray. 
holy and wondrous God, we ask that you come to us through your word today. Come to us to wrestle, come to us to discern, come to us to uh, wonder, come to us to understand, come to us to commit. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, Larry, if you can, next slide. So I like to be transparent in, you know, what, uh, what works I look at as I prepare my sermons. And so, one, of course, the book of Romans today, and uh, I consulted, uh, drew a lot from a text called Reading Romans, which is a biblical commentary by theologian um, and professor uh, of Bible at uh, Emory called uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, and another book by... Uh, a uh, Jewish theologian um, named Abraham Heschel, and the book is God in Search of Man, A Philosophy of Judaism. Part of the reason why I consulted, you might wonder why I consulted a book about Judaism is partly because we tend to make Paul into a contemporary Christian. But the reality is Paul was a Jewish Christian, and he's trying to reconcile what it means to be Christian as a Jew in light of the fact that he feels called to preach the message, particularly to Gentiles. So, um, so let us move on from there. So last week, Tim, sorry to use your uh, sermon illustration from last week, but Tim uh, gave a great uh, sermon illustration drawing from this movie called If I Had a Million. And in it, it talks about this uh, great steel tycoon who gets fed up and decides that he's going to uh, write out million-dollar checks to folks. And some of you, if you were here last week, uh, bear with me for a second. And he decides that he's going to go and give checks to just random people that he doesn't know and see what happens. And so the movie is directed by, I think, like eight or nine different directors, plays out different scenes, what happens when these people receive these checks. Now, Tim talked about last week what happens when someone does receive that check. And, um, you know, drew this wonderful uh, sermon about that, uh, using that as a metaphor for God's grace. But also in the movie, which Tim alluded to, are folks that don't really trust that check, right? And for some people, like, getting that check just makes things worse. Or for some people, they're just really skeptical of it. For instance, in one scene... Uh, I went and looked it up, so I wasn't able to find the movie, actually, but I was able to look up a plot synopsis, so you'll have to let me know if I get it right. But in one of the scenes, uh, a person um, receives a check and thinks it's a joke and gives it to his friend who doesn't really understand what's going on. I think it has uh, some mental health issues and isn't able to understand, but later on in that movie, they see this person get out of this limo and he's the one that has the check, and this guy, the joke's on him, right? But part of the reason why, and, but I want to dwell with the fact, I want to validate the fact that these people's doubts about the check are totally legitimate. Part of the reason why it's so impossible to believe that someone would want to give you a million dollar check is that you don't have a relationship with this person. If a random person came up to you and wanted to give you a million dollar check, 
but you didn't know this person, you didn't even enter into a sweepstakes for it or some <laughs> raffle, there's no relationship there. Why would you trust this person, right? The, the, you know, the common sense wisdom says there's no such thing as a free lunch. So what's the catch? Or is it, is it April Fool's Day? Is the joke on me? And so that's the key to understanding, I think, in the book of, not just the book of Romans, the entirety of the Bible, that salvation isn't some random act where some, like, grand God then uh, has this d divine sense of justice, is detached from humanity, and then one day decides, you know, I think those people are screwing up too much and I need to save them, and I'm going to just throw a salvation at them and I'm going to turn it into all these theological rules and metaphysical games, and you have to believe all the right concepts in order for us to become saved. That's not actually the God that we find in Scripture. The God that we find in Scripture is actually a God who desperately seeks to be in relationship with humanity. This idea of salvation comes not out of some random sense of divine justice or divine, like, grand, mysterious love. It comes out of a deep, personal sense of relationship and desire to be in relationship. So, as I talk about salvation today, I'd like us to consider that salvation isn't something that just happens where we get saved at one moment in history. That salvation actually takes on the form of a reconciled, covenantal relationship with God. Again, that salvation takes place as a reconciled, covenantal relationship with God. Starting with Abraham, which we explored a little bit last week, God says to Abraham in making his covenant, not just with him, but with him and all of his descendants, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God says this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. But you also have to wonder, given God's history, with man, why does God want to be in a relationship, right? God creates Adam, and then Adam has his ascendance, everything goes awry, the world becomes an incredibly violent place. That's, that's the reason why God gets really upset. It says that man was very violent and out of relationship with one another. So God kind of hits the reset button with the flood and with Noah and stuff, right? God and says, you know, no, I'm going to start over again with Noah. But things don't really get too much better after that, right? Things go, if you read through the book of Chronicles or Kings, things just go awry over and over again. If you read through Israel's history, it's, it's the same old story again, but God chooses this time not to hit the reset button. But one of the things that I don't, I think the Old Testament answers better than the New Testament is why does God want to be in relationship with humans. In the New Testament, we do get this understanding that God really loves humans, but what does that mean? How does God want to be in love with humanity? So Abraham Heschel, uh, the Jewish theologian, says that the entirety of the Hebrew Bible can be summed up in one phrase, that God is in search of man. 
that God is pursuing humanity. That if you start from the Garden of Eden, that God not only speaks creation into place, but God forms humans out of God's own hands, that God breathes life into humans, that God walks in the garden with Adam and with Eve. If we look further on in Genesis, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. God appears to uh, Jacob as a wrestler, <laughs> which is actually my favorite metaphor for the journey of faith, this idea that God comes down and wrestles with us, and that we're to wrestle with God and our understandings of God. And then we get into Song of Songs, which you may skip over, over and over again, or read as a joke, as I have done many times as a kid, right? Uh, there are a lot of things I was not able to read that had kind of weird content like that, but you could always count on the Song of Songs to be entertaining um, when, I was, uh, when my mom made me read the Bible on Sundays. And, and ultimately, um, for us as Christians, we believe that God wants to be in relationship with us so much that God actually becomes human. And God comes to us in the form of Jesus Christ, not as some uh, pretend human being, but someone who lives among us, that is born like us, that lives like us, and then dies like us. Um, all of uh, Jesus' life takes on a very real human existence. One thing that Paul is also clear about is that the, that the story of humanity and God is that man is certainly not in search of God. While God is desperately pursuing humanity, humanity is doing the opposite. So if we look at Romans 3.10, Paul says, None is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. No one seeks after God. You could also write that the Bible can be summed up in one phrase, that man is running away from God, and God is running after them. God's relationship with humanity through, through the biblical stories, one of God pursuing humans, and then when God's able to finally catch them, God then wrestles and struggles with them. Humans are trying to run away, and God is trying to hold on to them. And that's why when God comes to Jacob, God names Jacob Israel, and God says, because you have struggled with God and with humans. You have struggled with God and with humans. This God that we find in the biblical story is a passionate God. It's a God who is not just someone who's cool and calculated and uh, sits above everyone else, but is, sits among us, has passions. We hear over and, over and again that God is a jealous God. The words, when we talk about God's wrath, I think we should think about it in more poetic terms, that God has emotions, that God has passions 
that God does get upset when humans don't return the relationship that God wants to have with us. But we're not ready to sign on. So, which makes us wonder, so I have this slide that I think kind of captures our relationship with humans. Larry, can you toss it up? It's about God's persistence. <laughs> just take a moment and look at it. You might want to say, reading the biblical narrative, you might want to say this to God. God, it's over, man. Just let it go. So, moving on from there, if we want to understand salvation as this understanding of covenant, that God wants to, this idea of covenant is this idea that there's a mutual agreement among two parties, at least two parties, that, dis, that say that they're committed to each other. This is the kind of relationship that God wants to be in with us. But I'll, at the same time, we're not ready to sign on to it because God is the one that shows up and says, hey, I want to be in relationship with you. And humanity is saying, who are you? Why do you want to be in relationship with us? What does it mean? What's the catch? Another way of understanding salvation is this idea that we have to be righteous. And we get hung up on this word as Christians a lot on the meaning of righteousness. We tend to think of righteousness as this idea that we are sinless, that we have to become perfect, or that somebody has to erase our sins and make us perfect and pay all our debts off. And that language is certainly in the Bible. But the Hebrew word for righteous is sadek, and sadek doesn't actually mean perfect. It just means that you belong to God and that you are in right relationship with God. And most Jewish theologians would say that, that it's not that you have to be perfect according to the law, it's that you have to be committed to it over and over and over again. So this idea is more about righteousness, is more uh, an understanding of commitment. Are you committed to God? And this idea of righteousness as commitment makes sense if we think about salvation as being in a covenantal, committed, reconciled relationship with God. But the problem that Paul faces, especially with us Gentiles, some of you might be Jewish, I don't know, is that this idea of righteousness or belonging to God, particularly in the Hebrew Bible, is just for Jews. It is for the Israelites. But Paul has a very strong calling to be a missionary out in the world and to call Gentiles to be a part of this covenant community. And so you'll notice throughout Paul's letters that Paul is always talking to Jews and Gentiles, trying to get them to see and be community together. So how then do Gentiles become part of the covenant? How do Jews get to be a part of the people of God in the first place. And it begins with God, right? God initiates this relationship, right? But what does it mean to be in relationship with God? What does, how does God initiate it? So if we think of salvation as the covenant that we have with God, covenant being the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us, 
then faith is the actual content of that covenant. Faith is what people do to show that they are committed and really into that relationship, right? No one ever says in a good marriage, oh, those people really, they believe in marriage. They have such a great marriage, they believe in it, right? No, people say, oh, those people have a good marriage, they're really faithful and committed to each other, right? And so, moving on from this idea of covenant as what is faith? And I'd like to suggest that this idea that faith is a dynamic interplay between commitment and trust. That this idea that God, God initiates the relationship, right? God commits first. God definitely doesn't really trust humanity, but God is in love with us, right? Um, this imagery of in the Song of Songs is that God falls in love with humanity, right? God can't help God's self. God, I think, might prefer not to fall in love with humanity, but God has fallen in love, and um, even though he doesn't really trust humanity, God decides to commit anyway. And it is through God's commitment that God is trying to show us that God can be trusted. And so our response to God's commitment, once we have, are certain that God is committed to us and that this relationship might make sense that we can then give our trust to God. And this is what we mean by grace. God's commitment doesn't come because we deserve it or that we're to be trusted. God commits to us anyway. That part of the faith equation, that part of the salvation equation is free. Unmerited, it's a million dollar check written out to us. But it's unlike this gentleman in If I Had a Million who just shows up and gives a check, God then says, I can be trusted, and I'm going to prove it to you, and I'm going to show it to you. That's why whenever you talk to a Jewish person, why do you believe in God? They will always say, because we remember that God brought us out of Egypt. That's in, uh, in uh, one of the versions of the Ten Commandments in the Bible. It says very clearly that you do these things because God brought us out of Egypt. God has shown us proof. God has showed up in our lives. God hasn't just told us and made us sign a document, a marriage certificate, God has shown up and he has proven his commitment to us and therefore we are to trust in God and then commit to God. So this dynamic of faith is first God commits to us, we put our trust in God which then enables our commitment to God. That is the content of what salvation looks like. That is the content of what covenant relationship looks like. And that is why faith is always, always initiated by God. That is why grace comes first and our faith comes after. But Another important thing is that grace is ongoing, right? In an ideal covenant relationship, things just go well, right? There's commitment and there's trust and there's commitment, which builds more trust, which builds more commitment, which builds more trust, which builds more commitment, and the faithfulness increases ever so uh, until infinity, right? But relationships don't work out that way, right? There's commitment and there's trust, there's commitment, and then there's a loss of trust and a breakdown in commitment, and then a breakdown in trust, and then 
um, their separation or estrangement, right? And this is where grace has to come to us again. So if you can go to the next slide. Or the one that kind of adds to that slide. Yeah. So we move from commitment to trust to faith, but then eventually sin and estrangement come into place. And this is where God's commitment comes into play again. That God is still committed, right? Even though we screw up, even though there's, it's a mutual agreement that God chooses to stay committed anyway. And when, we, when we're into relationship, right? When you're in a relationship and somewhere it breaks down and one person recommits again, that recommitment, we always experience that recommitment as grace and often as forgiveness. That's why we use so much of this language of forgiveness because God is still committed to us even though we are estranged and we've messed up in that relationship, which then builds our trust again and that we're able to commit again. And this commitment, recommitment that we do based on God's continued commitment to us or forgiveness takes on the form of repentance. We're able then to turn away from what was breaking down the relationship or to try at least to do it again. But this relationship is an ongoing thing. This cycle is how salvation gets lived out. God puts God's faith in us. We put our faith in God. Things break down. We need to be forgiven. We need God to be committed to us. And then we need to recommit back to God. And then the cycle goes on and on again. God isn't just talking about in this relationship our commitment or our community or our relationship with just me and God. God is always talking about when we, God talks about salvation or covenant that it's about our relationship to God at the same time our relationship with each other. Which is why Heschel, Abraham Heschel says again that a prophet's true greatness is the ability to hold God and man in a single thought. That when we think of God, that we are thinking always of others. We see this in the Hebrew laws, that both uh, the Hebrew laws are talking about our relationship to God, how we are to be in relationship with God, or how the Jews are to be in relationship with God, and how they are to be in relationship with each other. That's why Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and to love neighbor. Those things are never separated in the biblical story. And this makes sense, especially for Paul, because Paul is, Paul's main concern is this reconciliation between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, for both to see that they're in covenanted community together. But this is both good and bad news, right? This is good news in the fact that we can have a relationship with God, but this is also bad news because we have to be in right relationship with each other. And this idea then complicates this idea of salvation because your salvation isn't just about you and God. Your salvation is caught up with everybody else. 
Your salvation is caught up in, with everybody else. There's no such thing as personal salvation. Or that personal salvation is a part of salvation, but the community salvation is really what's at stake. And so our reconciliation, our relationship with humans, also has to go through this idea of committing, of trusting, of recommitting, of trusting, and recommitting again. But how do we learn this kind, how do we live this out, right? This is all conceptual, right? God, the way God pursues us is through embodiment. God shows up in very real and tangible ways. And if that is not your experience, then it's really hard to put our trust and commitment back to God. This can't just be a theological or philosophical prop proposition but it must be literal. That's why we believe that Jesus matters as Christians, because Jesus shows up. But it's not enough that Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago and lived for those people, and somehow we're to like draw upon the memory of that. That Jesus has to show up continually through the body of Christ, and Jesus is to be reborn, to live again, to be resurrected again, and for this ongoing sense that Jesus is coming again, Jesus is coming again, Jesus is coming again. So one of the interesting things about being a parent, right, is that I don't, um, with uh, Sayla, Sayla isn't able to hold any thoughts. Um, uh, she's starting to manipulate me and Emily a little bit by <laughs> trying out being cute and being angry. But to be honest, she's just, uh, you know, she's flesh and blood that's really cute and poops. Um, <laughs> Eats and poops, right? Um, but when Sela was born, we felt instantly committed to her. There was, she didn't, there's nothing to deserve it other than the fact that she exists and that we've fallen in love with her and we're committed to her. Now, it might idealize things, but I was a youth pastor for a long time and I know that uh, kids grow up to really frustrate their parents and breakdown in relationships happen. and It's not just the kid's fault, it's the parent's fault too, right? But I really can't imagine anything Sela could do for us, me and Emily, to stop being committed to her. Our commitment is unconditional. Even if Sela decides that she doesn't want to be a part of this family, I, uh, we would still be committed to her. Um, and we would go after her over and over and over again. And this is, I imagine, what it might feel like to be God in relationship with humanity a little bit. But we hope that Sela grows up a bit and eventually learns to trust us and that we've earned that trust, right? God is earning our trust at the same time. And Sela, uh, we're earning Sela's trust. But we hope that Sela then, after learning to trust us, then commit not just to me and Emily, but we hope that commitment goes out into the world and that Sela is able to commit to the world. I think this is what God is hoping for too, that we, as we begin this cycle of committed relationship with God, that we're not just able to commit back to God, but we're able to grow and expansively commit to the lives of others, to commit to be in relationship with them, to commit to struggle. 
And that's why I believe that salvation, in another way, can be not just seen as a moment in history where we're in right relationship, but that salvation is an ongoing process of struggle. And I think this idea that salvation is a struggle is important. Yes, there's grace. It is started by grace, and it is only by grace that we can be saved. But then salvation also calls us into a life of struggle. This is why Paul says later on in the text, we even take pride in our problems because we know that trouble produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, given, who has been given to us. This idea that there's endurance that is built up, that there's perseverance, that there's character that's built up, and that, that hope is at the end of that process, that it is through this struggle, that not only do we, are we called, like Jacob, to struggle with God, but that we're to struggle with humans, not just in being in a good relationship with them, but we struggle for humans. God struggled not just with us, but God struggled for us. And that is why I, I believe, particularly in this moment of time in this country, when this idea, when our country has always claimed that all lives have mattered, right? But we know that it's not true, and this uh, movement of Black Lives Matter is calling us out that it hasn't been true, that the struggle that, for, that, the struggle that this country has been in saying that all lives matter, it has not been the struggle for everyone, that the struggle has to be for everyone that we continue to struggle because our salvation is caught up in everybody's salvation, not just our own. And whoever it is that is not being committed to, that whoever is not being struggled for, our salvation is incomplete. Salvation exists, but our salvation is incomplete. Because until everyone is saved, no one is fully saved until everyone is in committed covenant relationship with each other, we're never fully in committed covenant relationship with God. God is always committed to us. God is always committed to us. But God is waiting on the day when we are committed to everyone else. So, part of the topic that I was supposed to talk today was about this sense of assurance of salvation. And I know I've complicated that a bit because salvation exists and we are saved, but we're not totally saved. We have to hold those paradoxical thoughts together. That we can in confidence say that we belong to God, that God is committed to us, and that we are responding to God. But complete salvation, complete reconciliation, which is Paul's favored word. Paul rarely uses the word saved as opposed to reconciled. It's that God is waiting for the day when everyone is reconciled to each other. So may we struggle, may we commit, may we build trust, may we continue to commit, to continue to build trust, to experience grace and forgiveness and commit and commit over and over again. Join in the struggle with God. Amen.